Amen. Before I begin this evening, just a reminder that this Saturday is uh, the Ashland Train Day, and Calvary Chapel and Cross Reference Radio will have a booth there. I'm wearing a Cross Reference shirt, and if you would uh, like one, make me an offer after service, and we can see what we work out. Uh, 1 Kings, chapter 16. Forfeited blessings. That, I think, characterizes our consideration this evening. Of course, you could do the same chapter and uh, concentrate on, on another theme. For instance, the difficulty in pronouncing some of the names. The hands of the kings, actually not only the kings, but mainly the kings in this chapter, <clears throat> uh, they are defiant with, uh, well, bloody with defiance, I should say, and also somewhat calloused from clinging to those idols that they had fashioned for themselves. This will end up with the northern kingdom being dispersed throughout the Gentile world and, and gone, but the southern kingdom will be taken to Babylon over a hundred years after. There, Addressing those captives in Babylon, Ezekiel says they despised, God speaking through him, my judgments, and did not walk in my statues, but profaned my Sabbaths, for their heart went after their idols. And that's what it all comes down to, the first commandment. You shall have no other gods in my presence, in my sight, and God sees everywhere. They're not to exist. And their defiance against God brought forth death, and it was their own fault. In some of these cases, their own deaths. All these kings in the north were appalling. And the throne of the chosen people, which was to be occupied by righteous men, instead were, had men that were depraved both naturally and spiritually in character. And many of them came into power by conspiracy and murder. You would think we were reading about the Roman Caesars. And what it ends up being in this chapter is murderer was slain by murderer. So we look now at verse 1. Then the word of Yahweh came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha, saying... Now, before we get into the word of the prophet, um, I was asked, why do I read Yahweh when we come across the word Lord? Well, in most Bibles, well, usually the two options... When the covenant name of God is used by the prophets, it, the Jews felt it was too sacred to write the whole name out. So they retained the, the four letters only of, of that name. Uh, and they thought by doing this, this was a righteous act. And what they did is they lost the pronunciation. And so historians are not sure whether the pronunciation of the covenant name of God given to his people is Yahweh or Jehovah. It's more likely Yahweh, not Yehovah. Uh, like when we say hallelujah, that Yah part is uh, marking the covenant name of God. So in our Old Testaments and New Testament, when you come across that covenant name, those remaining letters... It's either italicized or in all caps. And that makes the distinction between Adonai, the Jewish word for Lord, versus Yahweh, that name of God given to his people, you shall call me or shall know me by the name of Yahweh. So I hope that's why when we come there, I, I 
purposely say uh, uh, Yahweh because that's who it is talking about. And the name is supposed to be significant to the believer because the name is loaded with meaning. Essentially, it means God will save. And, and he has saved through Jesus Christ. Well, uh, here in verse 1, this prophet Jehu, not to be cons- confused with the coming king by the same name, and it will be said of that king that you know, he drove his chariot like Jehu. Well, this is not the same one. This is a prophet Jehu, we're told right out in verse 12. His father uh, was likely Hanani the prophet, who confronted King Asa, who in the south right now, King Asa is king. And the father confronted him. We pick that up in Second Chronicles 16, in verse 7. And at that time, Hananiah the seer, who was the father of this Jehu, more than likely, uh, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on Yahweh your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from you. Well, those words got him abused and put in jail. The king Asa at that point did not tolerate it. But this is um, a man that, this Jehu is a man whose father was a prophet, and both of them dealt with kings. Uh, Jehu will also confront the son of Asa. That son's name is Jehoshaphat. And we'll get that in chapter 19. It's profound. He says, you know, what are you buddies with those who hate Yahweh? I mean, he just really lays it on him. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20, verse 34 Now the rest of the acts of Jehoshaphat, first and last, indeed, they are written in the book of Jehu, the son of Hanani, which is mentioned in the book of the kings of Israel. And so there he is, here is a man that also uh, wrote a history about these kings, uh, was a prophet to them, and uh, someone to look forward to seeing when you get to heaven. Uh, It says here in verse 1, against Baasha, well, God sent his prophets to intercept and to encourage And to rebuke the kings. They were uh, of a higher rank than the kings when it came to spiritual matters. Uh, Many of them, of course, paid for that. Verse 2, Inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust, and this is now God's message through Jehu to King Baasha, and made you ruler over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam, and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins. So the prophet reminds the king of his lowly beginnings, sort of like Hannah's song, you know, he takes the beggar off the dunghill. Uh, he was a nobody, the prophet is saying, that was allowed a chance to be somebody. God was blessing him and when he called him, or allowed him, God allowed him to become king. And there was an opportunity there, even though the way he became king was foul. Uh, But he will forfeit the blessings. And you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin to to provoke me to anger with their sins. Effectively, he ditched the only true God for these make-believe gods. Uh, He provoked God by doing this, as humans do. May we not provoke the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, surely I will take away the posterity of Baasha and the posterity of his house. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. Well, it gets down to this. Your children, the prophet says, are unfit to live. This is a judgment, and it is God's prerogative to judge whether 
He waits until someone dies or he does executes judgment in his life, in this life. Uh, that comes with being God. He can do this, and he does do this, and so, certainly more in the Old Testament. Here's a big difference between the Old and the New Testament. Because you, you hear me say, it's harder to live the Christian life than the Old Testament righteous Jewish life. And you say, how? You know, we just had these righteous laws. Well, look at Stephen. If you were living in the days of David and they started throwing stones at you for preaching truth, you could grab one of those stones and throw it back at them. And you could fight. But... Christ says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's what Stephen did. This standard of Christ-like love is, um, it is a higher calling. So there are great distinctions between the two. We don't get to the New Testament without the Old. We don't do away with the Old. We just understand the Old Testament through the eyes of the New Testament and not the other way around. When you do it the other way around, you... You get into big trouble, you become legalistic, self-righteous, judgmental, and um, uh, you, you tend to like sodium monoglutamate more than other people. <laughs> All right, this is goofy, but uh, it could happen. Anyway, back to the seriousness of what's before us. Uh, this judgment is on the wicked house of Baasha. They were all in this. God makes it clear, again, through the prophet Ezekiel, the sons don't pay for the father's deeds. Uh, the wicked pay for their, their wickedness. And so we have to make sure we don't lose sight of, of that. This is the same disgraceful judgment that God pronounced on Jeroboam, who had also forfeited the blessings of God because he chose to uh, cling to his idols. This was supposed, this prophecy, I will take away the posterity of Baasha, and then he'll intensify it when he says, you know, the dogs will eat the flesh and the birds, when he gets into that. This is supposed to serve as incentive to stop it with the idols. While the prophet is preaching this to Baasha, he could have done like others have done, even in the Old Testament, and repent, admit his sin. But it was ignored. The prophet's words were not important to this man. In verse 4, continuing the foretelling of what's coming, the dog shall eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. Well, whenever there's gore like this, you don't forget it, do you? I mean, this is a, gro this is a grotesque <clears throat> excuse me, ending, a grotesque ending to Satan's idol brokers, and that's what they were. They had become idol brokers for God, They had the, uh, for Satan. They had the power to influence the people for good or for evil, and they chose evil. And uh, the Lord is calling them out on it. And he is saying here, none would care to give their corpse a decent burial. None would dig a ditch for them or pile stones over them. None would also be able to accuse God of ignoring their evil and their ignoble end. So God acted to prevent the drift of the nation because of the influence of the kings by sending his prophets, predicting what would happen so that when it happened, the people could say, okay, God called this, he's the true God. Because these little figurines of ours, they don't say anything. They don't, these little idols are just useless. We'll come back to that word idol as we move forward through this. The people persisted in their sin, 
and they got what they deserved as the house of Baasha got what, what it deserved. And uh, again, hoping that the people would realize that God is serious and he is trustworthy and true. We'll, it, this will be repeated when we get to verse 34, where we have a man from Bethel, just bold-faced, defying, God, defying God's prophecy, defying what Joshua said about Jericho, and then paying for it. Hopefully, this makes the believer stronger. So, looking at this, they bear their own guilt. God is not guilty for withholding blessings. He doesn't owe us blessings. It is in his nature to want to bless those who come to him. He does not owe us protections. And in fact, with the church, with the believers, oftentimes he withdraws the protections because he's got a bigger mission. Again, I point to Stephen. The beginning of the, the great apostle Paul, that's what he, he was, a great servant of God. The beginning of that man's conversion was with Stephen's death. When Saul heard the sermon of Stephen, he couldn't get it out of his head. That's why we read in Acts chapter 8, and Saul, still breathing threats of violence, wreaked havoc on the church. He was so was burned that he could not silence the argument of this man. Uh, they, this sacrifice of Stephen brought about the conversion, not only the conversion of Paul, but also the gallantry of Paul, because Paul never forgot it. Years later, he's still writing about it. I was a blasphemer. I persecuted the church. And God did not hold it against me because I did it in ignorance. Uh, these things, everything's meaningful in Scripture. And God, again, withholding the blessings from the evil does not make God evil, but wicked people will charge him with that nonetheless. Uh, God did not lift a finger to interfere with the consequences. Again, that is his right. Had the king been obedient and not gone the way of the idolater, God would have intervened. God would have blessed. He wanted to do this to the people. And thus the title, Blessings or Forfeited Blessings. This is why, because of this turning the back on God and shaking the puny fist in his face as though uh, we're going to punish God by pretending he's not God, which is the life of the atheist. Uh, I, again, I say this so that you can maybe repeat it if you have not thought of it. If you confront and uh, come in touch with an atheist, tell him right out, I don't believe you. I, I believe you. I know you believe in God. You just don't like. You don't like what you, what you know about God. And I can help you with that or not. And these are just bare facts, but I don't buy it for a second. I don't believe that God exists. You know, I, I don't believe you're that stupid. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, the Bible says. But it says it uh, sort of uh, the, the way I'm putting it to you is my take on it. Verse 5. Now, the rest of the acts of Baasha and what he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Yeah, big deal. Uh, the kings built their ki kingdoms to gain fame, like the Egyptian pharaohs. And that's what uh, the historian is saying. Yeah, he did like kings. You know, he built up cities. He did uh, civil things. But when he died, that's not what God remembered. And that's what it comes down to. You can't point, well, I was a success as a king. Look at the, look what I built. Uh, Herod the Great, you know, he's the one that restored the Jewish temple. Or uh, you could say... Uh, um, made it enhanced the temple of 
um, Zerubbabel, uh, he, these great building projects that Herod was known for. But the man was a monster. He was a butcher. He was a murderer. He was, hum- he was just a, insane, satanic. So again, big deal as a king, you had these construction projects. That's not what's going to matter because they were all swept away anyway. Verse 6, so Baasha rested with his fathers and was buried in Terza. Then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. Of course, rested is the euphemism because he ain't resting. <laughs> he was an evil man, and for 24 years he, he reigned in the northern kingdom. Now, remember the prophecy of Jehu was not on Baasha himself. It was on his offspring, his house, his posterity, and... and Elah belongs to that group now, and he's now the king. He's a bad king, and he would be murdered for his throne uh, by Zimri, who would then become king for a week, and then Zimri would be murdered. (laughs) Well, he would actually kill himself. We'll get to that in this chapter. Um, But his father, Baasha, murdered Nadab, who was the king, son of Jeroboam. So there's this murderer, murdering, murderer, and... They have no problem. Their conscience is not disturbed by any of this. Verse 7. And also the word of Yahweh came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha and his house because of all the evil that he did in the sight of Yahweh in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed them. Well, the chroniclers, chroniclers or the historians led by the Holy Spirit they didn't itemize all the dirt that this guy did or these other wicked kings. They give us some of it, but suffice it to say that they provoked God continuously. There was much more evil that they committed than is recorded. But again, Jehu the prophet gets the call and is sent to uh, the king. In being like the house of Jeroboam, he says here in verse 7, and because he killed them, i.e. Nadab. So he's saying, your dad followed the sins of Jeroboam, the first king of the north. Uh, He was a murderer. And, you you know, you you have a wicked house here. You're idolaters and you're murderers because of it. Because if you were following me, you wouldn't be murdering like this. Verse 8. Elah reigned in Israel in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, became king over Israel and reigned two years in Terza. And they're not two full years, incidentally. But this statement in dating the reign of the kings in the north by the reign of the kings in the south is significant because we're going to find out there's going to be a civil war coming in the north. And it's going to last for four years. But we're not told it lasts for four years until we compare the dates of the reign of Asa, and that's how we'll get to that conclusion. And the Bible is filled with these little things. Uh, you, you just pass over them until you start, you know, really pour a lot of time into it and have questions, but it's, it's all over the Bible. It's such a, a deep book. It will go as deep as you want to go, and you'll never come close to the bottom. Verse 9, Now this, his servant, Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him... As he was in Terza, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, steward of his house in Terza. Okay, well, we can follow that. Uh, he's a, a 
is a major general, a two-star general, probably, equivalent today. And that's kind of important because you got these power plays coming on, and a two-star general really is not a big player on a political level. Four-star has a little bit more power uh, than a two-star, and it's going to come down to that because uh, uh, Zimri is going to face Amrai, who is going to be a four-star. We'll, we'll come. I mean, now, if you're not military-minded, you're like, oh, it's boring. But it, um, it, it is part of the story. Ecclesiastes 10. That king wrote this. Blessed are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Well, the reason why I'm quoting Ecclesiastes 10.17 is because here we're told that Zimri is drinking himself drunk. You could tell the, the, the historian is disgusted with this guy. And he's, you know, this, this is no way for a king to behave. And he's just telling it like it is. Of course, this was not... What else did he do? How did he behave when he was drunk? Uh, well, this is what decadence is about. Verse 10. And Zimri... Now, it's, it's difficult. The Zimri and the Amri. They both end with the... And they're not pronounced the same. And it's just this is constant in the Old Testament. The, the Greek language is, to me, a little bit easier. You know, um, anyway... Coming back to this, uh, verse 10, Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Well, Zimri's killing Elah. Elah's Baasha's son, and his posterity is not going to survive. And Zimri comes in and he, he kills him. He says, Oh, that was easy enough. But again, this is going to only last. Seven days. The shortest reign of any of the kings, in, of, of all the kings, the shortest reign is this one, this Zimri. Uh, his name, Zimri, becomes almost proverbial. Jezebel, that Sidonian witch, um, she will insult the other Jehu, the king Jehu, before he becomes king, uh, as, uh, you know, are you, you know, Zimri, the killer of your master? And she, we'll get that in Second Kings 19. So here's, uh, she, could, she knew this much of the Jewish history. She was the anti-Yahweh of her day. At the bottom there, again, in verse 10, in the 27th year of Asa, Asa was king for 41 years. Uh, he was the one that died with the bad feet. And <laughs> that's what happened. Verse 11. Then it came to pass when he began to reign. Now this is Zimri. As soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the household of Baasha. He did not leave, one, leave him one male, neither of his slaves nor of his friends. And so a purge. Now, this would have made Stalin proud. Uh, but this is... Um, this is fulfillment of what the prophet said. God didn't do this. He didn't stop it either. Again, the right of God. They forfeited the blessings and the protection. Um, but he supposed that by eliminating any heir to Baasha's throne uh, that he's taking by through murder, that he would be challenge-free. He was wrong. In verse 12, 
And thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet, verse 13, for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah, his son, by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel sin in provoking Yahweh, God of Israel, to anger with their idols. And it's restraint on on the part of the historian who's writing this. So how do you really feel about these idolaters that have ruined everything for the nation? Well, we, we all know about being provoked. None of us like being provoked. We even use it as an excuse to sin sometimes. Well, they, they provoked me. You know, well, that's not a, justif- that's not a defense. Uh, that won't stand with God. So uh, on, 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 in certain circumstances, it will, but not all. But anyhow, coming back to this, <clears throat> they provoked God. That is a re- reoccurring theme here. The Hebrew word here at the bottom of verse 13, the last word of verse 13, uh, the word idol, here it is habel in the Hebrew, which is, is significant because it means vapor, emptiness, vanity, nothing. So he's saying, they, in provoking Yahweh, God of Israel, to anger with their vapor, with, their, with nothing, It is the identical Hebrew word used again in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 each time we use vanities. Uh, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Five times he's using Abel, that Hebrew word. It's it's all just vapor. And so the Jewish uh, people, and Jeremiah uses it a lot, no less than eight times, in reference to idols. They say, this stuff is junk. It's nothing. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. What is an idol? It's nothing. Uh, it's, it's, it doesn't even count except against you. And I like how these prophets handled these idols. You know, we mentioned the, some with the disparaging words. There are other words they use, very descriptive of them. And uh, here, here is um, yet another so we read this and we send this, well, okay, they were idols, but I think their word is more uh, descriptive of what actually is taking place. So the word is not a figurine. It's, it goes beyond that. Um, anyway, they're following the vapor gods, you could say. Kind of interesting today. Every time, now you see a vapor shop, you can have that connection. <laughs> anyway... Um, um, This is the official reason for the fall of the northern kingdom and eventually the southern kingdom. 2 Kings 17, verse 15. And they rejected his statutes and his covenant that he had made with their fathers and his testimonies, which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were around them concerning whom Yahweh had charged them that they would not... Do like them. Well, as a Christian, you can read that, but be very careful because the church is notorious to asking the world, how should we be a church? And the world is quick to answer. Well, run it like a business. And that is not the church. And uh, there are business principles to the church, of course. That's stewardship. But it's not the same thing. We're not here for profit as prophets. We are here to uphold the word of God through our lives and our, our preaching. Uh, uh, and it, 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 that's enough. 
That is a lot right there. And yet the church is always reaching out, reaching out, asking the world, hey, come make us more successful. And I, I think it's, um, uh, it's very unfortunate. And I don't want to say that as a, though, uh, in a self-righteous way. I can, I can say it has hurt very much to stand against that. It hurts to stand against that. Because you meet people, you like them, you want them to come to the church, of course, because God is leading them. And then all of a sudden there's this rift that's established because they, they're trying to sway you from what God has, has established. In, in, and that, that comes with pain. It's never joyful. Ha-ha! You know, I shut you down. It's never like that. Verse 14. Now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Well, the records of the kings, their domestic and foreign achievements. Again, that's not the spiritual. This, uh, the, the kings and the chronicles, they document the performance of the kings in relation to God, their spiritual condition. The books that he's referring to here in verse 14 are their, their, their records of you know, domestic and civil achievements, uh, but not the spiritual losses. Verse 15, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri uh, had reigned in Terza seven days, and the people were encamped at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Well, there's a little history there. The mention of the southern king again continues to date the northern king. Solomon has been dead, incidentally, about 51, 52 years, to give you a little timeline. Zimri, it says here in verse 15, reigned in Terza seven days. Um... Consequently, he couldn't hold on to the throne. And the people were encamped at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now, Gibbethon was where Baasha killed Nadab to take the throne. There was a Jewish garrison there because of the Philistines, a large military force to keep the Philistines in check. And they were there to probably take territory back when Baasha killed Nadab. Well, they, they left troops there under the leadership of Amri, who is going to leave there and come to the capital and kill Zimri and take the throne. Looking back at 1 Kings 15, I hope you find this interesting. I think it's interesting. For one reason, God says it's interesting, and that's it. If I'm reading, you know, something on, uh, you know, uh, General MacArthur, I find it intriguing. That's my preference, but it is nowhere near the authority of reading God's word. And God's saying, I've taken this out of history and preserved it for you. And now, all of a sudden, I want to, you know, every jot, every tittle now has life in it. So when we cross-reference back, it's because there are points to be made, and these points are to make us stronger because our understanding expands. And as a man is in, you know, is in his heart, so he is. In verse 27 of chapter 15, Baasha killed, Nadab, well, Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. So that's the support behind my statement that the garrison is there. Uh, verse 16. Now the people who were encamped heard it, said, Zimri 
has conspired and also has killed the king. So all Israel made Amri, the commander of the army, over Israel that day in the camp. So 45 miles away, this separates Gibbethon from uh, Terza. And word gets to the garrison, hey, the king's been assassinated and Zimri's taken the throne. Amri and his people are saying, a major general is now king over me. We're going to make you a general over all the army, and, and we're going to make you king. And, and that, he's got more clout. He's got higher connections than Zimri. And so now he's promoted, verse 17. Then, Zim, then Amri and all Israel with him went up to Gibbethon, and they besieged Terzah. I hope I'm not losing you, or the Bible's not losing us on these names. Uh, they're trying to, it would sure make it easier if it was names like Mitch and Dale and Jeff, but it's not. And the temptation to substitute those names has been great. <laughs> but I'm not going to do that. Anyhow, uh, Amri, he doesn't waste any time. Evidently, he discovers weaknesses in the fortification of Terza because he's not. Once he takes the throne, he's not going to leave the capital there. He's going to relocate it, and that's why he said, "Look, if I could take this place, other people, I don't know." Anyway, uh, that likely did influence his decision. Verse eighteen, and it happened when Zimri, uh, Zimri, sorry, the re and the rye, they, they're, they're rivaling each other. When Zimri saw that the city was taken. He went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the house, the king's house down upon himself with fire and died. Well, he's no hero. Verse 19. Because of the sins which he had committed in doing evil in the sight of Yahweh, in walking in the way of Jeroboam, and in the sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. So the Spirit of God says, Satan filled this guy, used him, and then when he was finished with him, he left him alone to his insanity. And God said, and I left him alone too, because it was good that he be, you know, it's a terrible end. What a wasted life. He evidently had some skills to become a commander of half the chariots, and yet wasted because of just his godlessness. So the writer claims that God's judgment was upon him. And it was by simply, you know, if, if God, when we come across the Lord's cursings on people, all he has to do is withhold the blessings, and it now becomes a curse. Verse 20. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri, Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So he's remembered as a treasonous, whereas the other kings were doing the same thing. But again, there are other facts that have been omitted that um, contributed to a stronger dislike for him, evidently. Verse 21, then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Gidnath, to make him king, and half followed Amra. Well, now here's the civil war. So uh, Amri responds, goes up to Terza, takes, you know, takes the, the, the city. Zimri kills himself. And 
the people aren't satisfied with that, another, and they, they now have war. And see, see how the Bible works? It doesn't tell us here how long the war lasted until we move further down and we find out, we, we compare the date that Zimri, uh, Zimri came to power and Amri comes to power based on Asa's rule, and then we say, oh, that's four years. That's how long it, it took. Comparing verse 15 with verse 23, that gives you the answer. And I'm not going to take time to read it because we still got a ways to go. And I, well, we got time actually, but I don't know if it puts you to sleep. Fortunately, we don't have microphones in the pews for multiple reasons. One, we don't want to hear snoring. Uh, anyway, uh, Amri uh, is one of the few individuals in the Bible whose name has been preserved outside of the Bible uh, uh, from that time period. The, the, not in a book, but in a stone, the Misha stone. And you can look that up on, on your own. Uh, the names him and Ahab by name. And the inscription uh, is by King Misha of the Moabites, bragging about his victories, uh, giving glory to his god, Chemosh. And it's um, just a, a fact, an archaeological find that is interesting. Uh, he describes looting the temple at, at Judah, and um, it... Uh, it actually even references the name of Yahweh. So, anyway, I, I've not seen it. I think it's in the museum in, in London, but um, there you go, verse 22. But the people who followed Amri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Genath. So Tibni died and Amri reigned. <laughs> so uh, it cost Tibni his life to get on the wrong team. The mention of, you know, the son of Genath, you know, you got to say, do we need to know that? Yeah, I guess they, they needed to know that, and it's just been preserved. Uh, he did not die of natural causes, this Timni, um, but a violent death. Verse 23, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Israel, and there's a time stamp, Amri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Uh, six years he reigned in Terza. So six years he's in Terza before he relocates. Uh, again, looking at verse 15 of First Kings 16, and it says, um, you know, I've never been able to find First Kings 16 in Second Chronicles 15. I've just not been able to do that. So uh, let's go to Kings. And there we read, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Terza seven days. So that's our time stamp. And then we compare that with verse 23, where it says, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Amri became king. Well, why, not? why didn't he become king when he burned the house down? Because they had that civil war. And, and there's your four-year uh, gap between the two. I, I like when those things happen. Because when they don't happen, you say, how come it doesn't tell us? Verse 24 uh, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver. <clears throat> then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, uh, owner of the hill. Variations of that name, about 150 pounds of silver, it seems like, according to those who measure those things out for us. Uh, this Am Amri, he's the father of Ahab who 
marries Jezebel. And we're going to have a lot of things about them later, the beginning next chapter, actually. The, but these mountains of uh, Samaria, which you always, whenever I say the name Samaria, it doesn't it not sound like some area? I, you know, but anyway, um, <laughs> Samaria, where he relocates to, has better fortifications for sure. So much so that when the Assyrians come, it's going to take them almost four years, or three years, before they, they, they take over Samaria. The giant Assyrian army could not just waltz right in there. The fortifications were, were that strong. And it was such an important city that after the Assyrians destroyed it, um, others came along, the, the Persians and Herod, and, and rebuilt it. The attackers would have to attack uphill the whole time. Uh, because it was ele- higher elevation. Um, a- anyhow, moving on to verse 25, Amri did evil in the sight, <laughs> in the eyes of Yahweh, and did worse than all who were before him. Yeah, and his son will top him. Don't worry about that. Verse 26, For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and in the sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking Yahweh God of Israel to anger with their idols. The temptation is to say, well, why, didn't, why, why doesn't God stop these guys? Because when well, he kills that one, the next one comes in, he has to kill that one. It makes God this hitman for us. Uh, this is, he works with what he has, and this is what he's been given. This is the right move, and by faith we know that. We know that given what was before him, and the rules that we are under, established by God, this was the right move. Uh, we do that with Adam and Eve. You know, why didn't Adam, God just make and, you know, kill those two and give us two more? Because, well, they would have done the same thing because the free will does that. Uh, without, without uh, um, being the, the resurrected life, the, the imparting of God into us that awaits we who live now, in its fullness, that is. Well, Amri, um, according to men, he did well as a king. Uh, he just built stuff and he you know, established the army, and that's what's being told here. But still, he provoked God. Uh, he was actually one of the most impressive kings of Israel in terms of those accomplishments, physical accomplishments. But um, God was not impressed. What a lesson. God was not impressed. He was provoked. So you see a successful person. Um, you know, we have them, these oligarchs, and they think that because they're successful that they're going to survive death. <laughs> and they're not. They think that when they die, somehow it's going to work out or it's not going to be that bad. Uh, they're provoking God. And that is you would, a sane person would understand that. Worldly success does not offset insulting God. You can't say, yeah, I can insult God because look at all the good hospitals I've contributed to and what all of my good deeds. It's not how it works. It says here, Jeroboam in his sin. We read it again, uh, verse 26, for he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, in his sin, by which he made Israel sin provoking Yahweh, God of Israel, to anger with their vapor, with their idols. Verse 27, And the rest of the acts of Amri, which he did, 
And the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings? And that might that he shows a physical might, it's not his uh, spiritual might. Verse, David danced before the ark with all his might, different, uh, different uh, function there. Verse 28, so Amri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. And that's where you dim the lights because he was just a, a bad guy. Verse 29, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Amri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. This is the same guy that his wife had Naboth murdered because they wanted his land. And he didn't want to give it up for his vineyard. The, um, this serves as the backdrop for the story of Elijah coming on the scene. And so now Kings has moved from, you know, the struggle of Solomon and, and then these initial Kings in the North. Now we're going to next, next session, get to the prophet Elijah and it gets more spiritual. And I don't know about you, but I enjoy that a lot more. So King Ahab, um, his story will continue up to 20 chapter 22 of Kings the spiritual rivalry between the two, uh, Elijah and Ahab, will be intense. Verse 30, And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of Yahweh more than all who were before him. Well, God says he was worse. So, in this chapter, we have Jeroboam mentioned. He was king for 22 years in the north, and he was bad. Nadab for two years, his son, he was murdered, and he was bad. Baasha, who killed him, 24 years, he was bad. You know, again, an eight-year term of a liberal doesn't seem too bad compared to these guys, but it still is bad. Anyway, uh, I wonder what gas prices were when these kings were in. Anyhow, Elah, two years, he was bad. Zimri, or Zimri, pardon me. Seven days. <laughs> he was too bad to go on. Amri, extra bad. And Ahab, his son, the worst. He's probably the worst of them all. Verse 31. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. He took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. Now it's starting to heat up. You could actually put this section in the next chapter where this, you know, precipitates Elijah showing up. But where it says there, uh, it came to pass as though it was a trivial thing. You have to love that he inserts that. As though this was nothing for this guy. He's not finished. That's the kind of mood that goes with this. You can tell he's irritated by him, and justifiably so. As if it was a little thing, it was an idol worshiper. He goes and marries this witch, Jezebel, the daughter of a man whose name worships idols, Ethbaal, the king of Sidonians. Her influence is, really changes a lot of things. Uh, so Ahab won't reign alone. He'll have the anti-Yahweh reigning next, this Phoenician princess at his side. She was extraordinarily evil, so evil that Jesus brings her up when he talks to the church at Revelation. 
And he brings her up as though she's the standard of evil influence in the church. Revelation 2, verse 20, to the church at Thyatira. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants who commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So, that's, that's pretty bad when the Lord God uses you as the poster person for wickedness. She influenced Ahab to be evil and wicked, like I said, with the stealing of the vineyard of Naboth. When she wasn't around, we have one little section in chapter 20 where she's not around. And he, Ahab, he has this moment of relatively promising behavior, but all for naught. So within him, he, there was... There was a portal for good, but he made sure that door never stayed open. Well, and it says, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And as I mentioned in other messages, usually the, the apostate is worse than the unbeliever. The one that once was with Christ and, no, and turns away from him becomes worse. As we, Charles Templeton writes the book, you know, I said goodbye to Jesus, oh God, oh, whichever one he wanted, it was no difference for us. We know what he, he was doing. This was a man that was once an evangelist. Um, anyhow, and there are other stories as such. Verse 32, and he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. He must have been very proud of himself. And it was, of course, for his wife until he stood before God when he died. And he wasn't so proud after that. Verse 33, And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke Yahweh God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now this wooden image, typically the one used here, is a sacred pole for the Canaanite goddess Ashtoreth. Uh, Ashtoreth, but it could, Baal could share in it, and they, they could, you know, that's, you know, when you make up your gods, you just make up the rules. I think, uh, you know, we should have, the Bible doesn't cover, <laughs> you know, anyway, it's just these man-made religions. In comedy, there was this one skit concerning Festivus with this, <laughs> Father just makes up this religion. And it's just, you look at it as a Christian, you say, yeah, that's the same thing that they do. They do that in all sorts of ways. They follow the God that allows abortion. They follow the God that allows sexual immorality. They follow the God that allows, you know, greed. They just make up their gods. Just today, they don't waste time trying to build a little figurine out of them. They just do it in their hearts. Verse 34, in his days... Hiel, now this is kind of an interesting section, of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his secondborn, Segub. <laughs> he set up its gates according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Well, I don't know if my name sounds goofy in another language. I don't think so. Maybe. But those names are goofy to me. Well, the second one. Anyhow, this is not a random statement. You know, you're reading about these kings. All of a sudden, in his days, Hillel of Bethel built Jericho. 
it announces that there's the spirit of defiance, that it's critical that, that in his days, in the time of Ahab and Amri, it's significant. He's from the northern kingdom. He's from Bethel. And the writer is telling us that. And he crosses over to Jericho. And uh, this, as I mentioned, announces a spirit of defiance against God that it is roaming the land. Evil is being exalted. As we're seeing in our own land, evil is being exalted. It's being applauded. It's being embraced. But not without consequence. Now, God supernaturally destroyed Jericho. We know the story. Joshua prophesied about it after that. Joshua 6, verse 26. Then Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before whom before Yahweh, who raises up and builds this city. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Well, in defiance, in defiance, Hael, a Jewish man from Bethel, knows that verse. He knows this, this prophecy and this curse, and he fulfills it in defiance. He doesn't believe it at first. And the death of his firstborn was not enough to convince him. He continues with the project. Bethel was where that altar was that God dispatched the man of God to confront Jeroboam, the first king of the north, that cursed altar. Laying the foundation and setting up the gates marks the beginning and the end of the construction process. It says, according to the word of the Lord. Well, God gets the last say. That's what the prophet is writing into this story after he has talked about these wicked kings and their defiance of God, their forfeiture of the blessings, he is saying to them, God gets the last word. And the writer was not um, wanting the exiled Jews who are reading this. This is really compiled for the Jews that have in exile and that will be coming back into the promised land with men like Ezra and Nehemiah leading them there. Uh, he wants them to understand what is going on. That God's word is reliable. That it is serious. And when God says the dogs will eat the, the descendants of Jeroboam and Baasha, it happened. He meant it. The grass withers. The flowers fade. But the word of God stands forever. Now, Bethel was in Ahab's kingdom. We're almost done. And therefore, the timing is very significant. Again, pointing to verse... 34, in his days, it is, it is a not random, big part of the story, the defiance of God's word would be met with retaliation by God and the fulfillment of, of the prophecy of Joshua. So, realizing that he alone is God should stir the reader to say, I am not going to defy God by having these idols. But they did not. So we close with this verse from 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And that evil that he is speaking about is rejection, rejection of the authority of the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, God the Son. That is what is being said here. And this is our message to the world. You can be like these um, defiant kings 
But God will get the last say, and it shouldn't be that way. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the information uh, just draws us in, and we are very grateful that it's there for our edification to make us better at serving you. We really thank you, Lord, that we fail and you forgive, and you do not write our name down in the wicked column, but justified, pardoned because of Jesus Christ. Uh, May we never lose our hunger and desire to be useful to you. And may may you also, Lord, get us all home safely tonight. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.